25 is where we are this evening. We are actually not going to wrap up the, the epistle tonight. We're actually mostly going to be looking at verse 24. There's quite a bit for us to consider from this portion of the text. But if you will, um, take a look with me in Jude and verse 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen. Jude reminds the reader in verses 22 and 23 that while unbelief is unbelief, as we've discovered the past week or so, we are to have discernment, as we looked at last week, in how we are to deal with men in unbelief. If you look at verse 22, Jude writes and says, of, And of some have compassion, making a difference. And others say with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. And so when you look at what Jude has stated concerning these who are in unbelief, we saw that um, unbelief is unbelief, and yet there are men in unbelief that respond differently or react differently or manifest that unbelief in a different manner, I should say, than do some others, but yet it's still the same unbelief. If you recall, we looked in Acts 17 last week concerning Mars Hill, where Paul goes to uh, those who are in Greece, and of course he is, uh, these Greeks are, are there seeking wisdom, seeking knowledge, seeking to learn, and they their gods, and of course there was one to the unknown God, and then Paul preached Christ to them. He said, I will preach this unknown God to you, I'll tell you who he is. And then he goes on to explain to them the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they heard the resurrection, if you recall, there were two responses. There was one of unbelief, and then at the end of the chapter there we find those who claved to Paul and believed. But yet there were two different manifestations of the unbelief. One of them were, was that the people mocked the, Paul because of the resurrection. They mocked the resurrection itself. Then there were the second group who said, we will hear more of this at another time. We will hear of this matter again. Both are unbelief, all the same, but yet their manifestation was different. And I think we see that coming forth here as Jude is speaking concerning how we are to address those who are in unbelief. Uh, Gardner is quoted in the pulpit commentary I told you last week as saying, all souls are to be cared for, but not all by the same methods. And I believe that's a great statement to be considered um, it is imperative that we exercise as believers discernment. We exercise discernment when addressing unbelievers. It's important, again, that we deal with people where they are. Last week we discussed two examples of how we are to deal with those in unbelief. First, there was the curious unbeliever, and he says in verse 22, and of some have compassion, making a difference. So this is in reference to those who would be in doubt concerning the gospel, be in doubt concerning truth. Not believers doubting, unbelievers who are doubting. And he's saying, uh, on these folks, we are to have compassion. We are to deal with them tenderly and gently, and we are to help to guide and instruct and teach them, if you will, the truth of the faith and that of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jude surmises in this verse that we are to demonstrate compassion uh, uh, towards those who are wavering in doubt. But then second, there was the obstinate unbeliever in verse 23, and others saved with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. So here there is this, this 
hate that's toward that, that wickedness and that evil and pulling them out of the fire in the sense of snatching them out, if you will. And there are those who do require a direct and blunt approach to their desperate condition and wickedness. There are times that we are to snatch out those, is what it literally means, who are under the impending wrath and judgment of God. Now, this verse is in no way implying that we actually have the ability or power to save anyone, but it's saying that we are approaching them in desperation ourselves in a, in, intentionally and doing so with this urgency because we are aware of their condition and we want them to understand the, the reality of their condition. And so that is what is being referred to here by Jude. Jude now concludes, here in verses 24 and 25, he concludes his epistle in the most appropriate manner. And he does so by a doxology. Webster's dictionary defined a doxology, his 1828 dictionary defined a, a doxology as not only a hymn of praise to the Almighty, but also as a particular form of giving glory to God. As Jude concludes this epistle, he does just that. He writes his last statements of the epistle in praise to God and gives God all the glory. Look at verses 24 and 25 again. Not to him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen. Now understand, Jude's does not in any way attribute to God any power or any glory or any majesty or deity or anything that God does not already possess and already is already His. It is Jude's acknowledgement of this. He is saying, okay, Lord, we acknowledge you to be this, who you are, and so we give you this. We acknowledge that this all belongs to you. Now, there are several truths within these two verses, and specifically within verse 24, which we're going to look into this evening, to which we must give our attention. Let's look at verse 24 again, just this verse now. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Now before we begin to consider the relationship between Jude's praise to God, his doxology, regarding what he is doing, what God is doing in the lives of his people, which we find in verse 24, We need to define some of the terms which Jude uses in this verse. That is verse 24. In 25, he gives God this glory and praise and honor. He's acknowledging who God is and what God is doing, as we see in verse 24, within the lives of his people. But he uses some terms here that it's important that we recognize and understand what he means by these terms before we go further into the verse itself. First of all, there's the word keep. The word keep is to guard, to watch and observe. I've used this many times as an example for you to help you to understand this truth in a very practical way. You know, in soccer, for instance, there is a goal and there's someone called a goalie or he's called a keeper. And the keeper is keeping the goal. His responsibility is to guard that goal, to protect that goal, to make certain that nothing passes through, the ball does not pass through. And he is to get in the way of that. He's to guard it, protect it. And so the word keep here, it literally means guard or to watch and observe in that same fashion. It it, it is that which is protecting, if you will. Then second is the word falling. He says, now to him that is able to keep you from falling. The word falling is without stumbling. It, It is talking about not stumbling. Falling would be to stumble, in other words. And the emphasis here. 
understand too in the translation, of course, of uh, Scripture, you have um, things that are translated into the English language, of course, which are done so in a manner that we have an understanding of the translation of what's actually being said. In this case, it's saying that uh, the, the actual word falling is without stumbling. It's talking about not stumbling. Now, understand the context. It says, keep you from falling. So, keep you from stumbling is the point, without stumbling. Then there is the word present, and to present you faultless, he says. The word present is to stand there, or if you would, to cause to stand. It's to have one stand. Then you have the word faultless, and faultless is blameless or and without blemish. And so Jude is saying, here's what he's literally saying. When he says, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. What Jude is saying is this. God is able to guard and watch you so that he prevents you from stumbling And furthermore, not only does he prevent you from stumbling or falling, but also causes you to stand blameless and without blemish in his glory with great joy. What's being stated is there there is coming a day in which we will stand before the God of glory and we will stand in his glory, not in this wicked flesh, but we will stand before him in his glory. And it is God through Christ who is the only one able to not only prevent us to watch and guard over us so that we don't fall, and let's use this terminology, if you will, falling away from the faith. Now, those who are in the faith do not leave the faith. That's the point. God is the one who prevents that from happening. Then he says, but not only does he prevent you from falling, but he causes you to stand in his, the presence of his glory. Now, you have to understand, this, this again has what you would understand to be there's a, a negative connotation and a positive connotation. This is all good, but the manner in which it's stated. He prevents us from falling. He keeps us from falling. Falling is a bad thing. He is keeping us from that, but he doesn't just keep us from that. He also causes us to stand in the very presence of his glory as one that is blameless, Without blemish. Yes. Yes, well, he's the anchor upon which we stand. He's the anchor of our soul. And he is from falling. We would fall is the point. We would. We, we, we would fall without question. But it is God that is keeping us from that. Not just talking about... This is not talking about the context, though this would still be true... The context here is not that he keeps me from from temptation. Though God does provide a way of escape for all temptation. Scripture teaches that. This is talking about before his glory, in the day in which we will stand before God, in his very presence, literally, in a glorified body, at that time, or even prior to the resurrection of the dead, if we were to die first, and then we stand before God, we are still presented unto him as blameless, and we are in the presence of his glory because of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's, it's he that is able to keep, it's he that is watching, it's he that is guarding over to make certain this is accomplished. Now there are, there are multiple scriptures which teach and remind us of this wonderful truth of God's faithfulness to complete this work. First, let us see what, what Jude says here. Our God is able. 
to keep us. Paul concludes his epistle in Romans in a very similar manner as does Jude in this epistle. Romans 16, 25-27, you find Paul as well gives a doxology. He says, and listen to, the, listen to the, the, the similarity here. Now, in Paul's doxology, it is more along the lines of the question that was asked a moment ago. Because now, listen, listen to what it says. It still has eternal implications nonetheless. He says, now to him, that is of power to establish you, according to my gospel. And the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith, to God only wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. There are some similarities there between Paul's conclusion of his letter to the Romans and, of course, that of Jude's. Now, the certainty of us not falling away is as certain as the unlimited power of God who spoke the worlds into existence. This is the same God. God is able to perform. He is able to complete this work of redemption. This work will be perfected. Look again at Romans 16, verse 25. Now to him that is of power to establish you. Go back to Jude 24. Now unto him that is able... To keep you from falling. This is talking about the ability of God. This is talking about the the power of God to do this that he has purposed to do. As I said, this work will be perfected. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 say this. Paul writes, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Look again, you find, and this isn't even the conclusion of his letter. Again, you find this doxology of Paul. Glory to God in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. But notice what part of that, unto him that is able according to the power that works in us. Notice when the ability of God is mentioned here, it's associated with the power of God. And the power of God is unlimited. I spoke the other night in our theology class and was explaining about um, how that God, of course, theologically speaking, there is no potential with God. Now, the word potential here means that God is not, does not change. There is no possibility of God changing. There's nothing that will cause God to change. He is who he is and will always be who he is. And so when we speak of potential, that's what we're talking about. And so then the question might be asked, well, is there anything that God cannot do? In the sense of the power of God, there is nothing that is beyond the capability of God in regarding to his power or his ability. But the things that God cannot do are things that would contradict who he is because he is who he is and he, there is no changing with him so when people speak about what is god able of doing or is god in, incapable of doing something well it's not that god's power is limited to any degree there is nothing that limits his ability or his power but the one thing that god 
could never do would be he cannot contradict who he is. And who he is always manifest, be manifested by what he has done or is doing or does. So God's power is limitless and God's ability is limitless. Hear me. God can do whatever God so desired or designed to do, but he will never act against his own character and his own attributes because that's who he is. And so there's no potential with God. In other words, I would say this, and and look, we're not limiting God. We're explaining based on what Scripture teaches us who God is and, and his ability, what he will or will not do. Here's what I'm saying to you. God cannot change. Does that mean God's limited? No. It means that he will not contradict his character. And the scriptures teach us that he is unchanging. (laughs) There is no shadow of turning with him. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He cannot change because that contradicts his very character and attributes, his person of who he is. And so, again, well... Could God sin? Of course God can't sin. But why? Is God limited that he could not? No. First of all, there's nothing that would desire unrighteousness with God because his character is that of righteousness. He is righteous. His essence is holiness. Therefore, he cannot sin. Not in the sense that there's something beyond his ability. That's not the point. It's he will not contradict himself. And so God will never contradict himself. But that does not limit God, and you need to understand that. Because when we speak of these things, we need to understand that God's ability is limitless. There is nothing that he is not able to do. But there is that which he cannot or will not do because of who he is, because it would therefore contradict his very being, which therefore would make him no longer God. So he cannot do that because he is God. He will always be God. And so he cannot contradict himself. If he were to contradict himself, he would not be God. And that's impossible. But it's not that it's beyond his ability to do something. And that's important for you to recognize and understand. Because there's a distinction between these two things that must be realized. Because if you have a God that is unable of, or unable to do something, then it's like, well, wait a minute. Can that really be God if he's not capable of doing this? This isn't about his capability. It's not power it's about he will never contradict his person his being who he is and what he has declared so notice how when the term able is used in terms of this ability of god it's associated with as well of course this power of god Paul also wrote to the Ephesians concerning the certainty of this power of god which is working in those who believe Ephesians 1 17 through 20 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope, that is expectation or certainty of his calling. <clears throat> and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Notice what, what Paul is saying here in Ephesians. He's saying that he's praying that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the knowledge of Christ, 
having our eyes, or the Ephesians' eyes, and ours as well, of course, and understanding being enlightened, that we might would know what is the hope, what is the expectation, what is the certainty of His calling. And all of this is according to the exceeding greatness of His power to us, or towards us, who according to the working of His mighty power. So here we see clearly that from verse 24, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. That God is able to do this. How foolish it would be for us to question God's ability to do that which he says he is able to do. But then second, not only are God able to keep us, to guard, to protect, to watch, and keep us from falling, and then to present us, to cause us to stand in the presence of His glory with great joy, but our God is willing to keep us. It is one thing to say that God is able. It is a different thing altogether to say He is willing. It's not only that God can complete the work He has begun, it's His will to do so. Were this not true, there would be no work or plan of redemption at all. Notice what he says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. It's his power working in us. It's his will to work that power in us. Back to verse 24, he says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless. We have to recognize the only way that we would be presented faultless before God is not only that He is capable of doing so, but He must be willing to do so. Because here's what we must understand. He does not have to do so. If God did not present us faultless before the throne of God, God is still God. He doesn't need that to complete Himself. So it's not only He's able to do it, but He's willing to do it. He desires to do this. Ephesians 1, 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has had blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4. Listen to what he says here. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. According, here it is, According to what? The good pleasure of His will. Before time, something only God could do. Who could do anything before time? No one but God. So something only God was able of doing, He wasn't just capable of doing it, but He did it according to the good pleasure of His will. And notice what Paul says here. He's chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy and without blame before Him. Do you see what he's saying? The same thing Jude says. The one who's able to keep watch over and guard, it's that He's able to do that, but it was His will to do this. He is willing to do this. Paul goes on to say in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the beloved. 
in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. Paul specifically writes to the Ephesian church, which is a Gentile church, and he is saying the mystery here of his will is that he would include the Gentiles in his redemptive work and plan. By the way, notice, it's not only that God was able to do this, He chose to do it. He was willing to do it. It was his will to do it. Let's put it that way. It was his will to do this. So we see that God is able to keep us, or God is willing to keep us. But then third, and this truly, I would say, is the icing on the cake, so to speak, maybe the the epitome of, of what we're being told here concerning God keeping us, and that is that our God is committed to keep us. I've said to you before, and it's funny, if you think about this, and even in a lot of what we just uh, chapter where Paul says uh, in verse 4, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blamed before him. In love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto himself. You know, love is commitment. That's really what it is. Are, are our associated with love? I would say yes. We, we have an emotional tie to what we understand to be love. But yet... True love is not an emotional experience. True love is a commitment. It is a, it, it is a purposeful, intentional commitment that is made. Now, does that again affect us emotionally? Well, of course it does as human beings because we do have emotions. However, the fact of the matter is that even in Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5, here knows what Paul says, that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blamed before him in love, having predestinated us. It is the commitment of God by which this is truly accomplished. Colossians 1, 19 through 22 says, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, may peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they be things in heaven or earth, or things in heaven. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, that now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Again, God's commitment. God was so committed in loving us that he slew his son that we might be reconciled to him. That is commitment. And what is the end of all this? To present you holy and unblameable and reprovable. So once again, while it's one thing to say God is able, it's another thing to say God is willing, it is yet more comforting to know that God is committed to keep us from falling and is committed to stand us in the presence of His glory. This is something He is going to do. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18-25. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesying, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. Verse 23, 
and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 4. Here Paul's saying, oh, keep, yourselves, keep yourselves pure. And then he says, and my prayer is, of course, that God sanctify But then notice verse 24. is he that calleth you who also will do it. Faithful is he that calleth. What call is he talking about? He's call, talking about the call to faith, the call to salvation, the call God makes of us to himself in redeeming us, in purifying us, in conforming us to the image of Christ. He is faithful to do this. Philippians 1, six. you know this verse well. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it. This work of redemption that God has begun, he's going to faithfully perform. He is committed to this. That God is able, there's nothing beyond his power. There's nothing which limits his ability. There's nothing that limits his power. It's a whole other matter to say, not only is God able to do this, but God is willing and was willing and is willing to do this. But greater still, what's more, is that God is committed to this. He's going to do it. It's not just he can do it. It's not just he's willing to do it. He's committed to do it. While Jude exhorted the reader, keep yourselves in the love of God in verses 20 and 21 of this text. He says, but be beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. The fact remains that while we are responsible, as Jude reminds us, to continue in the love of God in which the Lord has placed us and placed in us by his indwelling spirit, Jude concludes the only way we could be kept is by the faithfulness of God. So often the scriptures refer to the faith of Jesus Christ. And it's talking about the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. He is faithful. Verse 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you. He that watches, guards, protects you without stumbling. Keeping you from stumbling. To present you. To cause you to stand. Faultless. Blameless. Without blemish. In the very presence of his glory. With great joy. Understand this now. Listen to what Jude actually is saying here. It, again, it's one thing to say, okay, God is able, willing, and committed to keep me from falling. Is able, willing, and committed to stand me in the presence of his glory, which is beyond our imagination. But notice the last tag here that Jude uses with exceeding joy. Think about this for a moment. Because of this work of God that he is committed to perfect, when we stand before God in eternity, we will do so absent of all fear and just filled with exceeding great joy. Here's what I'm saying to you. Only God could complete a work like that. If I were standing before God, apart from Christ, there would be nothing but fear. But because it is Christ, God who's begun this work in Christ in us, he's able to complete it, he's willing to complete it, and he's committed and faithful to complete it, that we will stand before him without blemish, without spot, without fault, 
without blame. And you know what that does? That provides nothing but joy as we stand in the very presence of the glory of God. How could these things be? I'll tell you exactly how they are and how they can be because of what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. When we stand in Christ and Christ is in us, we stand before God with joy, knowing that we have been made accepted in the love. God is faithful to this work. Let's bow in prayer. Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity to